Our Father, we thank you for your word, your promises, your faithfulness. And as we examine your word this morning, as we hear from it again, might we be captivated by your grace to us. Might we be drawn to you, compelled to go to you, satisfied with you, delighting in you, because of what we hear about you in this word. Would you guide me with accuracy and wisdom and clarity? And would you change us by what we are about to hear? We pray in the name of Christ and for his glory. Amen. Well, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, starting the end of July, we're going to take three Sundays, maybe four, um, take three Sundays for sure, and just think about God's grace to us as a church body. And we're going to culminate that with um, a worship, a, a celebration worship service on August the 11th. Just thinking about God's heritage, God's grace, God's provision to us for 40 years. And as we think about God's grace to this church body for all these years, primarily we are going to be thinking about God's grace in salvation and His His work in salvation through us and to us. So how how has this salvation been worked out in our lives? And so we're going to spend those weeks thinking particular in particular ways about about God's salvation and, and the import of ministry. It is appropriate to think about God's salvation and to remember God's salvation and to remember the impact that that salvation has had on us. Paul, in fact, instructed Timothy to that end when he wrote in 2 Timothy, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descendant of David, according to my gospel. In a similar way, the apostle Peter reminds his readers of their salvation and then says to them, Therefore I always uh, therefore I will always be ready to remind you of these things of your salvation even though you already know them have have been established in the truth which is present in you I consider it right as long as I am in this earthly dwelling to stir you up by way of reminder so so two times in those verses Peter points to the fact that we are to be reminded of our salvation and the appropriateness of thinking about our salvation. This morning we are going to come to the table of communion and and communion is an act of remembrance to remember what God has done on our behalf through Jesus Christ. And in a sense, that's what the Apostle Paul is doing for us in Romans 9 to 11. He's reminding us of God's work on our behalf to bring us to salvation. These, these chapters, Romans 9 to 11, are about God's sovereign salvation. They are the story of God's faithfulness to save His children. He is faithful to save His people Israel, and He is faithful to save us who have been grafted into that plan. And that plan of salvation, Paul begins to unfold for us in Romans 9, verses 6 to 18. We've been looking at this for a couple of weeks already. And in verses 6 to 18, he tells us that salvation is always the result of God's sovereign, merciful, and faithful choice. Salvation always comes to us by God's sovereign plan and God's sovereign activity by which He is merciful and faithful to us, even 
merciful and faithful in choosing us to be His. And we've seen that there are five demonstrations of God's faithfulness that are explained in these verses, verses 6 to 18. Over the last couple of weeks, we've looked at the first three of these promises. Today, we're going to look at the fourth promise, and then next week at the fifth um, demonstration of God's faithfulness. We've seen, first of all, that God is faithful in this, in that His promises do not fail. His promises do not fail. So the Apostle Paul had unfolded for us in the first eight chapters the glories of God's salvation, particularly drawing attention in chapters 5 to 8 about about God's sanctifying process. So once we've been justified, chapters 3 and 4, how God sanctifies us, chapters 5 to 8. And, and this glorious chapter, chapter 8, what some have called the greatest chapter and the greatest letter in the greatest book ever written, this glorious chapter of God's provision of the Spirit of God to bring us to, to sanctification. And Paul anticipates that some might be thinking about their salvation. And then because Paul has spent so much time thinking about the Old Testament and, and how God had made the promise to the Israelites, that some might think that, wait a minute, God made the promises to Israel and Israel isn't yet saved. Israel as a nation has not repented. So there are some within the nation who have repented, but, but the nation itself has not yet been saved. And if the nation hasn't been saved, when God promised that way back in Genesis 12 to Abraham, will we be saved? Will God save us? And Paul anticipates that in the first five verses of chapter 9 and speaks about the position of Israel and all of the benefits that the Israelites had as those who were under the covenant to Abraham. And then he makes a statement at the beginning of verse 6, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. It's not as though... God's covenant has failed. It's not as though God has reneged on His promise. And it's almost as if He's asking, has God, has God given up on His promised people Israel? Has God changed His mind? And He answers that anticipated question with an unequivocal, no! No, God has not failed. God cannot fail. God has not rejected His people. He will save His people, Israel. Israel can be confident of His salvation of her. And because Israel can be confident of His salvation of her, we can be confident of His salvation of us. God is faithful. His promises don't fail. He says, secondly, as another demonstration of God's faithfulness, in the middle of verse 6, His election doesn't fail. So it's not as though the word of God has failed, verse 6, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. In other words, there are some who have the physical lineage of being in Israel. They are Israelites by birth, but, but they are not true Israel. They are not repentant Israel. They're not, they're not saved Israel. And it's, it's not only Paul's way of pointing to the fact that that not all of them have been saved yet, but it is also his way to say not all of them are elected. And, and he's going to play that theme out over the rest of this chapter particularly, but also chapters 10 and 11, how God has not elected all those who are Israelites to be saved. Now, as we talk about this idea of, of spiritual election, we're talking about about God's choice. We're talking about God sovereignly as a master choosing and preordaining 
who got, who will believe in Christ for salvation. And what we're going to see particularly today is that that choice is apart from any kind of merit in the believer. It is apart from any kind of anticipation about what the believer might do in order to believe. It is solely the work of God. And, and that elective plan of God has not failed. Even, even though some in Israel have not believed, that doesn't mean that God's plan has failed. And Paul will demonstrate over these verses that God has chosen those who will come to salvation and all those whom He, have, he has chosen will come to salvation. There's no one whom God chooses that does not get to salvation. Everyone that God chooses makes it to salvation. If God has made a promise, He will keep it. If God has made a promise for sonship to anyone that individual will become a son of God, a brother of Christ. And then Paul follows this beginning statement or this pair of beginning statements in verse 6 with three illustrations of God's faithfulness. God's faithfulness to Isaac, God's faithfulness to Jacob, and God's faithfulness demonstrated even through the rejecter Pharaoh. We saw Isaac last week, the story of Isaac, that the God's election of Isaac is typical. So the way that God chose Isaac to be uh, the descendant of Abraham who would carry the Abrahamic promise forward is typical of how he brings people to salvation. And it's typical, verse 7, in that um, God is the one who calls. So God made a call to bring Isaac to fulfillment of the Abrahamic promise. So notice he quotes from uh, Genesis chapter 22 at the end of verse 7. He says, through Isaac, your descendants will be named. And that word named is actually the word call or called. So, so Isaac will be not just named and have the name of the covenant bearer of Abraham, but but he will be called by God, drawn by God, compelled by God to salvation. That word calling refers to God's act to bring to life that which is not alive. So Paul alludes to that in chapter 4, verse 17, speaking about Abraham. He says, In the presence of him, God, whom he, Abraham, believed, even God, who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. So God calls, draws, designs, plans, invigorates, brings to life that which is dead and brings into existence that which does not exist. We see an example of this even in the life of Jesus when He called Lazarus to life from the dead. That was very much a picture of God's calling work to bring life. So Isaac was typical of us in that he was called like us by God. God also made a promise. That's verse 8. He, uh, he names Isaac and names the descendants of, of, of Abraham through Isaac. And he says, verse 8, that is, it is not the children of flesh who are the children of God, but, it, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. So what counts is not physical lineage, that's children of the flesh, but being a child of God. And in order to be a child of God, notice that he equates that term the children of God with the children of promise. 
Those are the same things. He's talking about the same group of people. And those, children of God, children of promise, are also regarded as descendants. So God makes a promise. God draws those who will be His by making a promise. And those are considered to be descendants. And we noted last week as well that that word regarded is a word that It can be translated considered, and it's the same word that is used often in the New Testament and particularly in Romans chapter 4 to refer to the act of justification. So God justifies as descendants the children of promise and the children of God. So God considers them, reckons them, justifies them. And, And we remember that in order to be justified, that justification is received by faith. So, so God makes a promise. And that promise is fulfilled by believing God in faith. That's how Isaac received the blessing. And that's how we also come to faith in Jesus Christ. And then God also acted alone to fulfill the promise. So verse 8 tells us that there is a promise. And then verse 9 tells us the content of the promise. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah will have a son. And and the content of the promise is that God will act. So there's nothing that Abraham and Sarah did to accomplish fulfilling the promise that God made. They simply believed in faith and God acted. God came. God produced the life inside of Sarah. Um, God is the one who delivered the child through Sarah. It is God's act entirely. There's nothing that Abraham and Sarah have done. God did the work. And this is the same way that God um, works out His electing purposes in us. It is His work, not ours. So Paul has demonstrated how election was true in the life of Isaac and how that election is typical of how we also are saved. Now he's going to give us a fourth demonstration of God's faithfulness. And it is this. God is faithful. His purposes will stand. His purposes will stand. If the account of Isaac was the only illustration in the Scriptures about God's sovereign election, that would be enough. Anytime God says something once, that's enough. But But Paul's going to point out here, this is not the only time that that it demonstrates that God's elective purposes are active. It is also demonstrated not just in the life of Isaac, but also in the life of Jacob. And we note that from verse 10. He says, and not only this. And and when he says not only this, he, he means this is true of Abraham and Sarah, but not just them. There are other examples as well. Let me tell you the story of Isaac and Rebecca. And as he tells us the story of Isaac and Rebecca, notice this. He says, and not only this, but there was Rebecca also. And, and when he mentions Rebecca's name, I think he would have us to think about those life circumstances. He would have us to go back to the book of Genesis and, and think about the circumstances in which those women had their children and think about those children that they had. And, and as we think back about Sarah, and we think about Rebecca, we're going to think about and recognize some similarities between them. So both of them were promised sons. And then God promised the son, and then he did nothing for a really long time. 
And the women were grieved and wondering and curious, how will this come about? God made the promise. Sarah even laughed about it and said, I'm too old for God to fulfill the promise through me now, and it can't be in me. So both of them had the promise, you will have a son. And both of them were barren. Neither one of them were able to have a son. And then at a very old age, they both got pregnant and they both had children. And yet, um, there are some differences as well. Even as their sons were born, one of the other similarities is their, their sons were born and both of their sons had rivals. Who will, who will be the one who receives the blessing of the Abrahamic covenant? So both of them had rivals, but here's a key difference. The rival to Isaac came from a different mother than Isaac had. But the rival to Jacob came from the same mother. And and so Paul is here just boring into this idea that election has nothing to do with us and only to do with God and only to do with God's sovereign, gracious choices of us. It's not that we deserve it. It's not that we earn it. It's that God alone has acted on our behalf. So notice what he says in the middle of verse 10, thinking about Rebecca, when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. So then he reminds us that there were twins, Jacob and Esau. Jacob and Esau had one mother. Jacob and Esau also had one father. They shared the same mother and they shared the same father. But but Paul is very particular here that he bores in and says, when she had conceived by one man. In other words, they had one act of conception. So they came to life at the same moment by the same act of husband and wife coming together. In other words, Paul would have us to know... Oops, I get so excited about preaching, I forget about my outline sometimes. Let's think about how God chose Jacob. And as we think about Jacob, there's nothing distinctive about the conception of Jacob and Esau. They come together in in the same way. So, So there might have been some pause to look at to look at Sarah and say, well, Isaac is preferred because of Sarah and because of the fact that she was faithful to her husband and and Ishmael was born out of wedlock. And so God might have preferred Isaac because of that. And, And Paul would have us to see here that elective purposes have nothing to do with outward circumstances. Jacob and Esau came together with the identical heritage. And God still chose one and not the other. There was, there was nothing distinctive about their, about their beginning in life. Notice also this, that there was nothing distinction, distinction, there was nothing in their actions to distinguish Jacob over Esau. There, there, was, there was nothing about who they were or what they did that made one preferable over the other. Notice Verse 11, for though the twins were not yet born, when, when they were born, the choice had already been made. In fact, before they were in the womb, 
the choice was already made. We know from other scriptures, Ephesians 1 being one of them, that, that the choice was made in eternity past. That this, is, that this is something that not only predated them, but way predated them. And it, and it is a reminder that God alone is the one who decided. It is God alone who acted to determine and elect and choose which of these would, would carry forward the covenant promises of Abraham. And Paul emphasizes that even more. He says, not just when they were not yet born, but when they had done nothing good or bad. There was nothing to commend them, and there was nothing to condemn them. Uh, that, that word that Paul uses here for bad is, is a somewhat atypical word um, for how he might typically use that. And, and it's a word that means something that is morally substandard. It is something that is debased. It is something that would deter God from choosing them. And Paul says that doesn't exist. There's nothing that would compel God to move towards one and not the other, and there's, there's nothing to prevent God from moving toward one and not the other. It is not because they had done anything good or bad. In fact, he emphasizes this at the end of the verse. It is not because of works. In case we don't get the idea, he just lays it out plain and simple. God's elective choice of Jacob had nothing to do with works. Election and choice are not merited. And in fact, he he puts a contrast here at the end of verse 11. He says, it is not because of works, but because of him who calls. So it is not works, but it is because of God's action and God's activity to choose. The work of man and the call of God, Paul sets out here as being mutually exclusive. If you have one, you cannot have the other. If you have, if you have the works of man, you cannot have the call of God. And if you have the call of God, you cannot have the works of man. It, it is one or the other. You cannot have both. You cannot have an intermingling. And friends, this is just a reminder that election is never about what a man does to ingratiate God. In fact, God often chooses those which are lowly and despised and needy to emphasize that it is His particular choice. It is, it is nothing in the individual or the group that God is drawn to when He chooses. He simply chooses because it is a manifestation of His love and grace. So we've alluded to this previously, Deuteronomy chapter 7. God says to Moses, uh, or Moses says, For you are a holy people to the Lord your God, and the Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. God looked at all of the earth, and He chose Israel to be His. Deuteronomy 7, 6. Then verse 7, The Lord did not set His love on you, nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples, For you were the fewest of all peoples, but because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers, the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Why did God choose you? It wasn't because you were more. It was, in fact, because you were least. And God loved you because he loved you and brought you out. God God loves 
because of grace. There, there, there is nothing more explanatory than that. Paul will say something similar about believers in Christ in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He says, For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. That's the apostle's way of saying, y'all weren't so well positioned. It's Paul's gracious way to say you were at the bottom of the pile. You weren't smart. You weren't strong. You weren't honorable. But, verse 27, God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong and the base things of the world and the despised. God has chosen the things that are not so that He may nullify the things that are so that no man may boast before God. God chooses the weak things so that no one boasts in himself and everyone boasts in God. God, God, God elects, God chooses according to his sovereign plan so he gets the glory. So there's nothing in their actions to distinguish Jacob or Esau. Notice this, God's purpose and God's choice alone was the distinguishing act. This is the middle of verse 11. The twins weren't born. They hadn't done anything good or bad. So that it wasn't them. It, Paul is excluding them and their activity and their position and their heritage. Why? Verse 11, so that God's purpose, according to His choice, would stand. So that God's purpose is accomplished so that God's plan is accomplished. And and notice that when he says God's purpose according to his choice would stand, he uses the word choice or choose, and that is the word election. So God had a purpose, God foreordained and God planned, and out of his plan God made a particular choice, an elective plan to bring those into fellowship with Him whom He chose. God has selected which of the two boys would carry forward the the Abrahamic promise. And He does that for His own purposes, for His personal interest, and for His desire. And out of that purpose, out of that choice, He picks Jacob and not Esau. And, and as we're going to note in verse, verse 13, this is an act of love. Just as it is written, Jacob, I loved. This is, when, when God chooses, when God elects, when God calls, it's an act of love, it's an act of grace. We see this also in chapter 11, verse 5. In the same way, also then, there has come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. When God chooses, it's gracious. When God chooses, it's a grace gift. When God chooses, it's kind. We also see this in verse 28, speaking about Israel. From the standpoint of the gospel, they, Israel, are enemies for your sake, but from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. They're, they're beloved. God's choice is a loving and gracious choice. Um, and I recognize that that there are some that are going to give a little bit of pushback to this doctrine of election and, and God's choosing. And, and we'll talk about this in just a minute. 
um, that, that it seems to be unfair. And so let me just kind of flesh out for you a little bit. When we talk about election, what do, what do we mean by the doctrine of election? And, and when we talk about election, we're simply talking about God's active, purposeful, particular choosing for His glory who will be in His adopted family. So, so God in the eternal past has chosen out of the mass of humanity that has rejected Him, He has plucked out some for salvation in the same way that He chose Jacob from out of the line of Abraham to be the one that would carry the promise forward. So He chooses others who will be His. Paul speaks about this doctrine in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. He writes this in verses 2 through 4. We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father. So, so Paul looks at the Thessalonians and says, We thank God for you. We see your salvation being worked out in your lives. We see you growing in Christ. We see you maturing in Christ. Knowing, verse 4, brethren, beloved by God, His choice of you. So we see how your salvation is being worked out in your life, but even as we see that, we know that you have been loved particularly by God and that love has manifested itself in His choice of you. So while we see you working, we know that your salvation isn't of you. It is God's choice. God bringing you out of His love into the family of God. Again, as I read last week, uh, Louis Burkhoff from his Systematic Theology defines it well. Election is that act of God whereby He, in His sovereign good pleasure and on account of no foreseen merit in them, chooses a certain number of men to be the recipients of special grace and eternal salvation. And friends, it has to be God's choosing because of our depravity. We, we have no ability to respond to God in faith. We, we have um, no, no ability to understand. We have no ability, ability to recognize. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. And, and because we are spiritually dead, we have no capacity to respond to God unless God moves on our hearts. In chapter 4, he uses a number of different images to demonstrate how our minds don't know, our minds don't understand, our minds don't comprehend. We, we cannot move to God. If we will be saved, it must take the activity of God on our behalf. And this elective purpose that is because of our depraved condition in sin includes every aspect of our salvation. So again, Romans 8 verse 30, those whom He predestined, He also called. Those whom He called, He justified. These whom He justified, He also glorified. So, so God sovereignly chose in eternity past and those whom He chose in eternity past, He will see through all the way to the completion of their salvation. And we noted when we looked at those verses that, that Paul is so sure of it that he speaks of them in the past tense. This has already been accomplished even though we haven't experienced it yet. It is so sure we can, we can speak of it as if it is a past tense. 
This is God's elective activity that He chooses, designs, plans, brings into fellowship with Him those who are opposed to Him. What election is not is that election is not based on who God knows will believe. God is, excuse me, election is God's sovereign plan. It is God's sovereign choosing who will believe. One well-known preacher from a century ago, a name who, whom you will probably recognize if I, if I told you who it was, said this, God chose me for himself, but the devil chose me for himself. My choice is the tiebreaker. Oh, friend, if it is up to our choice, none of us will ever be saved. Remember what Paul said in chapter 3, verse 11? There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. If it is up to my choice, I will never be saved because I will never choose God. I will never desire Him. I will never seek Him. I will never long for Him. I will never seek His satisfaction. I don't want Him. And that is the condition of every man. Well, friends, it must be God's choice because no man will ever choose God. At the same time, Election does not remove human responsibility. Every man is accountable before God because every man has received the testimony of God in general revelation. We, we see God in creation. God has revealed Himself to every man. Romans chapter 1 verse 20, verse 20, He has been clearly seen, having been understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. There's no man anywhere who will get to the throne of God and the judgment of God and say, it's not fair, I didn't know. All men knew. And they rejected God. Election also is not an excuse not to evangelize. Well, God has chosen and God has designed and God has planned and God has purposed. Paul also says in the next chapter, Romans chapter 10, whoever will call in the name of the Lord will be saved, but... Verse 14, how then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in Him who they have not heard? How will they hear without a preacher? How will they hear without a proclaimer? Someone has to disseminate the news of who Jesus Christ is so that they can believe. We, we believe that God sovereignly purposes people for salvation, but we also believe that we've got to tell them. We're the mouthpieces that, that go forth and proclaim the truth of who Christ is. So this sovereign act of election is how God chose Jacob to be the recipient of his promise to Abraham. Notice also that God chose Jacob by means of his call. End of verse 11. It is not because of works, but because of him who calls. It's not works, but it is the call. It is God's effectual, gracious call that chooses Jacob. And and, 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 and that call is the causation of Jacob being the fulfillment and uh, Isaac being the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. Uh, William Hendrickson, uh, the well-known commentator, writes this. I think this is on your outline. In the final analysis, the reason why some people are accepted and others rejected is that God so willed it. The divine sovereign will is the source of both election and reprobation. Human responsibility is not canceled, but there is no such thing as human merit. 
God's eternal purpose is ultimately is not ultimately based on human works. It's not what we do. It is what God has done in planning and then accomplishing the act of salvation. Notice also how God chose Jacob in this, that God's purpose and God's choice was unchangeable. Middle of verse 11, so the God's purpose according to his choice would stand. That word stand is a word that is most often translated as abide or remain. It means it's, it's unmovable, it's unchangeable. God's God's purpose stands. God's intentions stand. God's God's plan stands. It it cannot fail. The the promise can't fail because God cannot fail. Um, So even though Jacob um, was at times disobedient and rebellious and failed God, yet the promise didn't fail because the promise was not dependent on Jacob. The promise was dependent on God. God's purpose and God's choice is unchangeable. Everything about our salvation is dependent on God. And friends, that's what makes it secure. It's not what we do. It's what God does and what God has done. I want you to notice not only how God chose Jacob in these verses, I want you also to notice that God's choice of Jacob is about the choice of a nation so he says in verse 12, as means of authenticating that the promise would come from Isaac, from Abraham through Isaac and then through Jacob, it was said to her, the older will serve the younger. And Paul here is not talking about the individuals. He is talking about the nations. In fact, if you go back to Genesis chapter 25, remember what it said when when uh, Rebecca was curious about what was going on inside of her, evidently the twins were having a wrestling match, and she's figuring, what is going on? The Lord reveals to her, verse 23, Genesis 25, two nations are in your womb. Not two children, two nations. And two peoples, not two children, but two peoples will be separated from your body. The one people will be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. When Paul quotes um, from Genesis 25 in verse 12, he's drawing attention to the fact the older serves the younger. He's not talking about the older son serving the younger son. He's talking about the older nation that comes from the older son serving the younger nation that comes from the younger son. And we'll, we'll see this played out in a number of a number of ways over the next a few weeks as we make our way through Romans 9, 10, and 11. But, but Paul here is emphasizing this is God's sovereign choosing of the nation of Israel to Abraham, through Isaac, through Jacob. And he, again, he's not talking about the salvation of Jacob. He's talking about the salvation of the nation of Israel. And it's his way of reaffirming that God made the promise to the nation of Israel and God will fulfill the promise to the nation of Israel. He is faithful. And if He is faithful to Israel, oh friend, He will be faithful to you in your salvation as well. Because He's faithful to Israel, He is faithful to us as well. Now as we, as we look at this text, there's one other question that we have to ask. And it is, what about 
God's hatred of Esau. Because it's one thing to say, Jacob, I've loved. That's great. Because those of us who are in Christ have received that same kind of love. We've, we've received the same kind of grace from God that has drawn us and compelled us and brought us in to fellowship with God. And, and if it simply said, Jacob, I loved, we'd all be good with that, wouldn't we? But he doesn't stop there. He says, but Esau, I have hated. <laughs> I don't know, if you have small children in your home or if you have small grandchildren, um, you hear this a lot, don't you? Mom, dad, grandpa, it's not fair. And friends, that is said about this verse. It's not fair that God, that God would pour out His love on Jacob and, and hate Esau. How is it fair that God hates Esau? So some have said, well, the, the solution to this dilemma is simply this, that, that God certainly loved Jacob, but He loved Jacob in a very particular kind of way. And he also loved Esau. He just didn't love Esau in quite the same way. It wasn't the same kind of love for Esau that he had for Jacob. And, 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 but, but Esau also was loved. And so when, when it says he hated him, it just means he loved him. He loved him a little bit less. Didn't love him as much as he loved Jacob. I like that. That sounds good. Kind of gets me out of the dilemma. The problem is, it just doesn't stack up to the biblical data. Now, the scriptures speak only a handful of times about God hating someone or hating something. And when the scriptures speak about God hating something, it speaks invariably about God's hatred of sin and God's hatred of sinners and ultimately of God's wrath against sin and sinners. So listen to just a few references. Deuteronomy chapter 12 speaking about the Israelites and how they're to relate to the nations. Deuteronomy 12.31 You shall not behave thus toward the Lord your God for every abominable act which the Lord hates they have done for their gods for they even burn their sons and daughters in, their fi- in the fire to their gods. God hates the, the live sacrifice of children to other gods by burning. Psalm 11, verse 5, The Lord tests the righteous and the wicked, and the one who loves violence, his, God's soul, hates. Proverbs six sixteen. There are six things which the Lord hates, yes, seven which are an abomination to him, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that run rapidly to evil, a false witness that utters lies, and one who spreads strife among others. Isaiah 61, 8, For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery in the burnt offering. Now, it would be nice to say, well, God just, when it says that God hates, it just means that God loves a little bit less. Friends, none of those texts mean God loves a little bit less. It means God hates it. He cannot abide it. It is an abomination to Him. He doesn't... He doesn't love a little bit less when people sacrifice their children to fire, a little bit less than he loves obedience to his law. No, he hates it and he will pour out his wrath on it. These things don't speak to less love. 
And they speak to hatred as we would typically use that word. God detests those things. And, and God's hatred is actually part of His divine wrath and retribution against sin. And in fact, if you notice, this isn't just Paul's word. This isn't just what Paul is saying in um, Romans chapter 9. It is actually a quotation from the Old Testament. It's from the book of Malachi. And you can turn there and look at it if you want. And if you can't remember the order of the minor prophets, Malachi is the last one before Matthew. So find Matthew and then go back about four pages to Malachi chapter 1. And the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but I, verse 3, have hated Esau, and I have made his mountains a desolation and appointed his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. Though Edom, and Edom, as we saw in Genesis 25, is another name for Esau, and Esau was the head of the Edomite nation, Though Edom says, we have been beaten down, but we will return and build up the ruins, thus says the Lord of hosts, they may build, but I will tear down, and men will call them the wicked territory and the people toward whom the Lord is indignant forever. Malachi is really clear. God doesn't love the nation of Edom a little bit less than the nation of Israel. God doesn't love love Esau a little bit less than than, than, than uh, Jacob. He hates Edom because they are an object of his wrath. In fact, verses 3 and 4 make clear that God is pouring out his wrath against Edom. And just a side note, again, this is a reminder that God is speaking, or Paul is speaking in these verses about God's choosing of the nation. Notice the interplay of how God speaks about Esau and Edom and puts them back and forth. So, When he speaks of Esau, he's really speaking about Edom. He's talking about the nation and God's choice of the nation. This is, these are harsh words. It's a reminder that that God brings his condemnation against rebellious sinners. But friends, even though God hates sin, and even though God pours out his wrath against sin, there is still grace in the midst of his wrath. Chapter 2, verse 4 reminded us of that. Do you not think lightly of the riches of His kindness and His tolerance and His patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? God in His kindness does not immediately judge every sin of every sinner, but He waits. Oh, friends, that's a grace to us. Because what I deserved was the very first time I sinned willfully that I would be condemned to hell. And he didn't do it. He he didn't he didn't pour out his wrath on us. There's another thing for us to remember as well, and that is while God did hate Edom, it is also true that God loves and adopts as his children people whom he hated. Because, friend, if you were in Jesus Christ, you were once an object of His wrath. You were a child of wrath. You were born for destruction. And He chose you 
and He poured out His love on you. Listen to what John Frame writes. God also hates wickedness and the wicked themselves. His hatred has awful consequences, of course. Ultimately, God will destroy His enemies and send them to hell. But God's present enmity is not always His final word. All of us once were children, were by nature children of wrath because of sin. God's wrath upon us then was a genuine wrath. We were wicked and God really hated us. We were headed for hell. But God loved us in Christ. And since that love went back before the creation of the world, evidently there was a period of time when God loved and hated us simultaneously. Before an elect person is converted, God both loves and hates him. God opposes him, prevents him in the long term from achieving his wicked purposes. But for such a one, God has glorious blessings in store. Oh friend, read verse 13 and see that you were hated and if you were in Christ, God in His amazing grace has made you to be one who is loved. You were hated and now you are loved. Is there anything unfair in verse 13? Oh yeah, there's something unfair all right. If we want to use the word unfair, it's unfair that God would pour out His love on anyone. It's not unfair that Esau is condemned. It's not unfair that anyone is damned. Everyone goes to hell by their own volition and their own rebellion. It is, in a sense, unfair that God would pluck us out and save us. Friends, this is, this is what we need to remember as we come to the table of communion, that God, that God has not only saved us by Christ, but this is all part of a, a divine plan that began in eternity past by His sovereign election of those who will be His. Our Father, we thank You this morning for this amazing love, this amazing grace this amazing salvation. Thank you, Father, for how you have elected those who will be yours. And you not only elected, but you also brought to fruition and completion that elective choice. This is your grace and your kindness. We are humbled. We thank you and we worship you. In the name of Christ our Savior, amen.